Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is James Lee. James is the co-founder and CEO of Mighty Health, the first exercise nutrition and wellness platform designed specifically for adults over 50. The company is backed by Y Combinator, NFL Hall of Famer Joe Montana, and the AARP. Previously, James co-founded Encore Alert, a social media analytics platform that helped executives at brands like Adio, Denver Broncos, Under Armour, and American Cancer Society identify and act on their top opportunities and crises each day. In March 2016, Encore Alert was acquired by Meltwater, the leading media intelligence platform. James also wrote speeches for Vice President Biden in the Obama White House and regularly writes and speaks about practical startup tactics at his site jameslee.com. James, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. Awesome. Let's dive right into it. Talk about your upbringing, you know, where you were born, what your kind of like family background is like. Um, We'd love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I grew up, uh, I was born and grew up in Orange County, California. Um, Went to a number of schools for both elementary school and high school that were like really predominantly Asian. I would say sometimes even over 75, 80%. Um, And basically my parents uh, were both entrepreneurs. So they're both immigrated from China. um, And then when around the time I was born, they started a computer hardware business. So they were literally selling those old PC towers, monitors, mouses, and things like that to local libraries and schools. So my biggest recollection actually growing up was actually spending most of my time in the back office of their computer hardware business, doing my homework, not knowing at all any of the stuff that was really going on around me. All the other coworkers were just saying, hi, you know, hi, James, you know, and then I was like, hi. Um, But I just remember like taking in the energy. I remember like my dad sitting in his office, like stressed all the time. I remember my mom in the front helping folks out. And I remember the hustle and bustle of everyone around the office. And so whenever I had time off from my homework, I would grab extra pieces of paper from the copy machine and just start sketching all kinds of random things that I wanted to do when I grew up. I remember I even sketched like wanting to start like a future like resort and what the water park would look like, or like sketching a future like dirt dirt bike park. I don't even know why I didn't even ride bikes back then, but it was just something that was, you know, I don't know if the right phrase is like in my blood, but I just knew that being around the energy growing up was, was huge for me. Uh, And then going to high school was actually the first time that I was able to put a bit more of that entrepreneurial mindset into practice. And so I remember my first thing was I had started a bunch of little clubs and initiatives, like not really businesses, right? When I think when you're uh, 16, 17, 18, you have no idea what a real business actually looks like and how it operates. And so you think anything that makes money is, is fine. And so I remember, um, you know, when I was 16, I used to print out um, comics from the local Sunday comic, uh, like the newspaper, 
and put them on a, you know, a white sheet of paper in Microsoft Word and then print those out and sell those for 75 cents. I think now in hindsight, I realized it was copyright infringement, you know, now, <laughs> now with, uh, <laughs> with that, with that benefit. But, um, and then I, I even started a, a Pokemon trading card club. So I had all my friends be part of this club with me. We all went to the local liquor store, bought those packs of Pokemon cards, opened them up in front of each other, put them in the sleeves. And I even went and printed laminated membership cards for each other. Um, so I could be, you know, member 001 and then my friends would be, you know, 00678. Um, and so, so that was really my, uh, my, my high school experience was growing up was actually being kind of known as like the business guy at school, because a lot of my friends had aspirations, uh, whether from their own or from their parents of, you know, becoming doctors or pharmacists or, um, or, you know, going into more finance and accounting route. Um, and I was the only one who was more on the entrepreneurial side, always trying to like rally my friends to do something together with me. That's amazing. Yeah. I love how you gave us that background information of like your parents both came from entrepreneurial backgrounds and that really shaped your mindset. And I feel like your, your story is kind of resonating with like Brian's in a way, because Brian comes from, you know, a family who, you know, started their own business as well. Maybe Brian can talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say that <laughs> your story is so reminiscent, you know, just the immigrant story of doing your homework in the back being known as the boss's kid, <laughs> you know, and just hustling throughout high school too. And a lot of similarities, like I, I used to sell magic cards and Yu-Gi-Oh cards wow. on campus and always get caught for it too. And always known as like, not, not the bad kid, but the kids that keeps on hustling on campus. Same, same. I got the same kind of, I got the same comments every semester from my teachers on the report card. You know how there's like citizenship and like effort. And like for mine, it yeah. was always like unsatisfactory. <laughs> and my parents oh, would God. always ask my uh, ask my teachers like, "Is James like acting up in class? Is he speaking out of turn? Is he like you know making a fuss?" And they're like, "No, he's not." But he's also like not focusing on school because he you know <laughs> you, do you remember those desks that had like you could put your stuff yeah. inside of the desk underneath it? Yeah. Like instead of books or pens or pencils, I just have like all of my stuff that I was starting for my different clubs and, all, and index cards and laminated membership cards stuffed in mm -hmm. there. And I think my teachers looked at that and was like, uh oh, like this is a trouble student. <laughs> little, did, little did they know that that laid the foundation for you to be so successful today, you know? <laughs> that's too kind. <laughs> so let's fast forward a bit too and talk a little bit more about when you, when, you went to, when you went to college at Georgetown, right? And you started your first company while in college. What was that process like? Like, how did you view, view school yet view business at the same time and try to juggle both? Because we understand you're an excellent student, you know, all... Just from background for our listeners, James is a fantastic student, super straight A. <laughs> but like, what was your view on like academics and entrepreneurship doing it at the same time at such a young age? Well, I'm sure this part will sound familiar as well, but I, I knew I had to take care of the academic side because that was basically my ticket to freedom. My parents would not let me go and do anything else or spend time on anything else if I didn't have that side down. And so I always made sure that whether it came to, you know, essays, tests, finals, things like that in, in school, even if I had to stay up last the, the last night to like cram for those, like I had to make sure that those were taken care of so that I had the ability to go work on other stuff. Um, what ended up happening in college was when I first joined, um, when I first got to Georgetown, I kind of went to this like info session for this program called Compass, um, which isn't quite around anymore these days. Um, but 
I remember the dean of the business school and this one like senior, you know, and back when you're when you're 18, you see like a 22 year old walk onto stage, you're like, oh, I want to be him. And I remember the senior saying like, hey, we started this new fellowship called Compass where we'll choose 15 students and we'll take you all around Washington, DC. You'll get to meet these mentors and business leaders. And at the end of the year, you get to start your own company and we'll give you $2,000. And of course, of all of that, I blanked out and I only heard the $2,000 part. And I was like, $2,000 like to a kid is like insane amounts of money, right? You're like, I've never had that much in my bank account, in my wallet, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I applied, I luckily got in. And so I was taken on this journey from freshman year that was like really, really lucky that I was able to go and meet all these different um, business leaders throughout Washington, DC. I remember one of them was like the CEO of Blackboard, which is, you know, that the software that a lot of colleges use. I was like, oh, I use Blackboard in, in, uh, in class. And now I actually get to meet the CEO. Like it kind of just started putting the pieces together and linking them together. And so that's actually the first company I started um, out of college or in college was actually uh, in the nonprofit space. Like we were helping nonprofits with helping them fundraise, their social media, their storytelling, and most importantly, how to communicate the impact of every dollar that they got. Like somebody donated $5, how would you communicate what that $5 actually got them? In terms of balance, at the beginning of college, I was so excited to be a part of all of these clubs. And then by sophomore year, I actually just gave up all the other clubs because I just like, I want to focus all my time and energy on working on this company. And I realized, I think pretty early on that college really is one of the lowest overhead parts of your life where you can actually take risks like this. Like if your company fails and you're not making any revenue, like guess what? You can still go eat in the cafeteria. (laughs) You know, you can still go home and sleep in the dorm and you still don't have like, you know, things like renter's insurance and like all all those adulting to have to worry about yet. And so I was just trying to like pack as much of of my experience in as possible of starting companies while I was still on campus. Um, Ultimately what that ended up leading to was, you know, as you mentioned in my bio, um, when I was graduating during my senior year, that's where things got really tough because a lot of my friends started getting internships, you know, end of junior year, end of sophomore year. And of course, as you know, when you get those jobs, or you, do, you get those internships, you get a job offer at the end of those. So they'll be like, oh, when you graduate, you'll come back, you have a job waiting for you, everything's ready to go. And so all my friends, including my roommate at the time, all had like 80K, 100K, 150K paying jobs waiting and lined up for them in New York and in San Francisco when they're graduating. And I was the only guy who didn't do any of those internships. I spent all of my summers working on my company. And so that's actually when we got our first kind of actual break or raised our first ever check from an investor was we had a, a mentor of mine in DC who was just believed in me enough. I don't know why, but believed in me enough to put in the initial 30K check into our company. And that's essentially what ended up becoming Encore, uh, which is a company that we built for the next four or five years. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, I love how um, you know you mentioned that you really took advantage of your your years on campus, because that is a pretty impressive, amazing feat. I think that a lot of people who go into college, they want to get that college experience and, you know, they don't really think about that. But what you mentioned is very, very true. Like those are your prime years to actually take risks, you know, because you do have a place to go back to to sleep. You do have food on the table. And those are like the most important years for you to actually like venture out and start your own business. But a lot of people don't realize that. And I think the trickiest part is that there are trade-offs, right? I'm right. saying it, I'm saying all this stuff as a positive thing, but I look back on my college days and there are many things that I wish I did, like studying abroad, for mm-hmm. example. I never had a chance to go study abroad. 
Um, you know, I would have imagined I would have had a great time if I had a semester in Barcelona or Copenhagen, mm -hmm. right? But instead I was on the bottom basement, you know, negative two floor of our library working on my company at like 11 p.m. on a Saturday. So I don't think it's glamorous at all. And I think that like, you know, for some people, they might want to just enjoy their college experience and really get the most out of it. Because there are some parts of college that you just can't go back in time and go do those things. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, one thing I always talk about a lot is I see entrepreneurship as like playing a sport, right? Would like playing any sport, including playing basketball or playing soccer. The only way you get better is by getting reps, right? You hear about the, mm -hmm. the legendary stories of Kobe getting thousands of free throws up at 5 a.m. in the morning or, or 2 a.m. in the morning. And I think for me, college is not necessarily when you have to build your unicorn business. You have, you don't have to build something that like will have to take off and go raise money right away. In fact, that can often be difficult, right? Cause then you, you're faced with a choice to like drop out or, or not. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's actually the best opportunity to get those reps in. Um, and I think people don't understand that. And I think people think, Oh, well, you know, instead of getting the reps, what I'll do is I'll, I'll just, um, you know, kind of learn about it or take an entrepreneurship class or something like that. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of the equivalent of like watching sports, you know, or like going to a sports game or studying a film. They do make you a better player, but the only way to truly get better is to get real life reps in. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that statement. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you have to put, it's like reading an entrepreneur book and actually doing it yourself are two totally different things, you know, and just using, I, using the opportunity in college and a lot of credit to you, like having that mentality in college to start hustling and, and doing these things and thinking bigger. It's, it's incredible, you know, because as you're talking, I was thinking about from my own personal story, I'm like, wait, my mindset was not totally there at the time. I was too scared to do anything, you know, and the fact that you did it and you raised venture capital and you had mentors and that's 30,000 in your company. I would imagine at the time you're just like, whoa, this is like incredible amount of money, $30,000. This is insane, you know? And I just want to hear more about, you know, Encore. Like what was the first breakthrough that you guys had? How did you spend the 30K to grow your company and eventually sell your company? And, and we'll talk a little more about this later, about Mighty Health as well. But how did you spend that 30K to grow your company? Well, um, well one thing before that too, just to address the mindset thing that you mentioned, this is kind of our first breakthrough with Encore is actually when I grew up, like, as I mentioned, I grew up around like doctors. I grew up around people, small, small business owners. So not software developers or companies like that. I never grew up reading TechCrunch or anything like that as well. And so one of the key parts that I missed about business actually was scale of the scalability of software. So that first company I started in college was actually a services business. It was consulting with nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And I kid you not, one of the summers that we spent with friends working on the company, we had a movie night one night. And I think this probably happened to tons of people, but we sat down and watched the social network, you know, the story of Facebook. Mm. And through that movie, we realized like, we just had this like aha, when, when literally as the credits were rolling, we like, we looked at each other and we had this aha moment, which now in hindsight sounds like really dumb, which was like, wait a minute, like if you build software that scales way, way more than like a services business of like just trading your time for like an hourly rate or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. And we just, none of us had ever come to that realization. I, to be honest, I still have like imposter syndrome to this day because I feel like I didn't get to grow up in the Valley, you know, and be around this a long time. So like, I didn't really come to these realizations until like I was like 20, 21. So maybe that's encouragement for your audience as well, that it's like never too late. Mm -hmm. But 
that's actually the first breakthrough that we had was we, we changed Encore from a services business where it was just a bunch of students consulting and getting paid like a couple grand to becoming a software business where suddenly I was looking for a technical co-founder and a CTO to actually join the team and actually build an app with us that we can go and sell, you know, infinitely to nonprofits. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was actually the realization, especially that the mentor that I mentioned saw us and then unlocked that first check because I think he realized, okay, okay, these kids finally get it. And I'm not like giving them 30 K to just go run like a consulting firm. <laughs> um, and in terms of the 30 K, I mean, it's funny because I remember we actually had to give back like 5k, like right away to like for rent of the office. I was like, wait, so we're not actually getting 30 K we're getting like 25 K. I was like, you know, doing the math. I was like, Oh, we're already running out of money. Um, and we actually ended up in a really, really tricky situation. So this is when I met my co-founder and, and CTO today, Felipe. So we had met, um, completely online. We met on AngelList. Um, we'd started working online together and I think he sussed out that I was not a serial killer and I <laughs> sussed out that he was not a psychopath. And, um, and then, so he actually agreed to fly to the U S for the very first time from Brazil and actually went straight from the airport in DC to sit next to my parents at graduation. And my parents were like, who is this like Brazilian guy who's like <laughs> sitting with us at graduation. And what ended up happening is we got that 30 K check and we spent that 30 K on like rent. So Tammy, our other co-founder, who you know, Felipe and I all lived in this house that was deemed the quote unquote entrepreneur house. And I, it was funny because it was my first time looking for housing when I had left uh, college. And so I was just on Craigslist and I saw someone posted entrepreneur house. I was like, oh, that must be it. That's where I want to live. So like, I just didn't think much about it. I signed a lease. Like I just quickly, like just, you know, got in basically. Right. Mm -hmm. And when we finally moved in we're like, Oh my God, like what we signed up for was a three story house with like 15 people living in it. There were literally people sleeping on top of what used to be a hot tub. And they put like a wooden board there. There were two guys sleeping there. There were two guys in the basement who like had to like run out one day because it started raining and it flooded the basement. Oh. There were cockroaches. There were literally like the air conditioning vents, like the filters were like pitch black because they hadn't been changed in years. Mm -hmm. um, and that was actually what we spent our 30K on was actually living there and eating Trader Joe's teriyaki chicken, orange chicken, frozen teriyaki chicken, orange chicken uh, every day. Uh, and then commuting to this office that we had to spend 5K of this 30K on to work out of a basement that didn't have air conditioning in the middle of uh, East coast summer. Uh, and that lasted us kind of the first, first, the first four months. Wow. That is insane. I, I love how you mentioned, you know, like you guys started off as a service business, like Vine and I always hear from entrepreneurs to like, never start a service business because it's not <laughs> scalable. And that's what we keep hearing over and over again. <laughs> we hear it all, probably like 80% of the people we have on this podcast are like, don't start a service company, guys. <laughs> um, it's funny because I, I actually am of, this, of the like feeling that it's actually really, it just comes down to the entrepreneur and what they want, right? right. And, and I think like it's completely unfair for me to say like, don't start a service business. It's more like, what do you really want to achieve as an entrepreneur and being self-reflective about it? And I think services businesses are actually really fantastic if you care a lot about like cash flow. Right. You know, and I and I think if anything, like those people who are making cash flow and having services business are making fun of people like me for like paying our paying myself so little and relying on venture capital to grow businesses and being in debt all the time. You know, so I think mm -hmm. it's just the grass is always like greener where you water it, basically. 
Exactly. Yeah. It also depends on the person too and what they want to do in life. Some people are just passionate about talking to people, helping others. So service oh. business, a lot exactly. of sense, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, while you and Tammy and Felipe were you know, building Encore Alert in March 2016, it was acquired by Meltwater. Um, we'd love to hear about that experience. You know, this was, I'm, I'm sure this was your first time um, having sold your company to a large corporation of, what was that experience like? You know, like what was going through your mind at the time? And what was that experience like for, for all three of you? Yeah. So one of the biggest things was, you know, we've been working on this company for about three years, maybe grew it to about 10 employees. And at the time we were still growing and we were starting to hit our stride and figuring out some, some things around sales. I think B2B sales was honestly one of the most challenging parts of that business because in college, that's not one of those things that you take as a class, right? You don't take B2B sales 101 with your professors. And so having to learn that just from literally trial and error, and also reading some books like Predictable Revenue and some of these like highly recommended sales SaaS books was the way that we cobbled together a sales team and started selling. So we started getting tired because, you know, I think my background has always been working on social impact and helping out with different causes. That was something I was really passionate about in high school as well. And it was kind of the intersection between, you know, the clubs I was starting and then also, you know, what I was trying to help out with. And I think that working on just marketing software in a super, super competitive space for four years, started taking its toll on us. And so we had the opportunity to move out from the East Coast to San Francisco to be a part of the 500 Startups Accelerator. And of course we got a little bit of additional funding from them, but by the end of the program, it was like, we'd either have to go and raise another round from, from investors and just kind of do the full fundraise again, or we had the opportunity to find a great landing spot with Meltwater, which is a global, huge media intelligence company. Mm -hmm. And the CEO of Meltwater had actually been a keynote speaker at Fiverr and Startups. That's actually how we met. We got connected that way. Yes. I remember um, after his speech, I went up and kind of had my laptop out and was showing him like what Encore Alert was. And he's like, hmm, interesting, interesting. Like, why don't you come over to the office next week and like, let's just chat about it. I was like, great. So I scheduled something with his assistant. I thought like I'm showing up for a coffee meeting, like it's gonna be casual, like I'm not sure what's going on. Mm -hmm. I walk into the Meltwater office and I get ushered into literally this conference room with this huge long like 20 foot table. <laughs> and it's like the head of data science, the head of product, the CTO, the VP of engineering, and like the CEO, they're all sitting there. And they're like, James, why don't you go ahead and plug in your computer and uh, give us a presentation? Oh, and I was like, Oh my God. I, I'm glad I had like a like backup keynote that I had prepared for something else like up on my screen. So I just like plugged my computer in and just basically leaned into telling some customer stories, right? What I was trying to prove to them was even though we were a really small company, we deeply understood the needs of our customers and why they needed a product like ours on top of like something like Meltwater basically. Mm -hmm. And so then that actually ended up becoming an acquisition conversation. Like I, that was not my original intention walking in, but it ended up becoming that. And I think another tough lesson, you know, looking back as well is I realized that, you know, as you said, Maggie, it was my first time actually going through an experience like this. Mm -hmm. And it was probably that CEO's like 100th time right. negotiating an acquisition. So I was like hugely outmatched. Um, and I think that, you know, in hindsight, I've learned a lot of, of course, really interesting and important lessons around the, you know, the value of leverage and having other um, folks bidding, you know, for you as well, you know, supply and demand, right? Simple supply and demand. But uh, at the time we did the best that we could. 
Um, one of the most difficult or important decisions that we made at the time was actually to return almost all of the money from the acquisition to our investors instead of taking them as founders. Mm. It's one of those things where like, you know, especially as an Asian family, you're like, oh, like, why wouldn't you take cash off the table? Like, isn't that why you're doing it in the first place? Mm -hmm. But given that it was, a, it was a tight acquisition and we wanted to really take care of all these people who like, honestly had like really put their belief in like 21 year olds, right? Early on, mm -hmm. we actually returned all their money back to them. And, you know, many of them had made multiples of their money as well in like span of six to 12 months. For the co-founders, for us, actually, what we took away was mainly a really amazing learning experience, having sold our first venture-backed company, mm -hmm. but also, you know, some financial upside from the company as well, right? In, in terms of joining them and staying with them for a bit. So it worked out really well for everyone at the end, but ultimately the tough decision there was to want, we wanted to play the long game and we actually wanted to work with these investors again in the future and we wanted to do it right by them. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's, I wouldn't even know what I would think if I went into a meeting with so many uh, executives, not even knowing that I was going into an acquisition meeting. So props to you for, you know, having There's that. Definitely a shock. Hand. <laughs> yeah, that is an absolutely amazing story, James. And thank you so much for sharing that. It just speaks volumes to who you are as a person to take care of your investors. You know, I think that starting a venture back company, the first thing you do is like burn investor money and never think about paying them back. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, everyone, everyone lot says of you're just going to take the money to Cabo, right? And just like spend it all in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The mindset you had was, to, all right, I got to pay back everyone that believed in me and think of it as a learning experience. So it speaks volume to, to what you created today, like Mighty Hell. You know, like we've heard, we listened to, you, to your other interviews earlier this year, actually in January, 2021 where you talk about, you know, your inspiration for creating this product is because of your dad. And, you know, hopefully your dad is doing a lot better now, but the inspiration like really touched, like touched me and Maggie's hearts a lot as we're doing more and more, more, and more research about you. Uh, can you kind of talk about like Mighty Health? Because a lot of our listeners probably heard of the product, but want to learn more about the inspiration behind it. Sure. Yeah. So, so basically a few years ago, um, when I was working on that previous company, I got a call uh, at 5 a.m. in the morning from my dad. Um, and at that time, I thought it was actually something that happened to my mom because she had suffered breast cancer before and she had overcome it. And so I just thought that she was back in the hospital. It turned out my dad was actually calling um, and he had been showering the night before, suddenly felt some like sharp chest pain. Like many Asian parents, decided he did not want to go to the doctor, uh, tried to go to sleep just couldn't. And then my mom like called some friends, you know, it, who were doctors in China and they were like, you gotta go to the hospital now. Mm -hmm. Turns out that his aorta next to his heart had burst. Actually, it's called officially called an aortic dissection. Um, and what ended up happening was the local community hospital couldn't take care of him. They didn't have the resources. So he got rushed down the 405, the busy 405 at like 6 AM through LA traffic literally the ambulance took like the lane next to the carpool lane. Like it had to like cut through just to make it, just to get him there on time. Um, and I remember him calling me and I, I had, I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor. So I looked it up on Google and like the first thing that pops up is that little snippet that Google shows. And it's like 50% chance of like death. And I was like, Oh my God. Right. I, at this point I'm like living on the East coast. So I'm like five hours away by flight. Um, so there's really not that much I can do at that point, right? <laughs> at that point, like you kind of just put your trust in the doctors and, you know, in God and you say, you know, 
hopefully it goes well. So 10 hours later, I get a call from the, from the surgeon and basically says, you know, Mr. Lee, like, you know, your dad uh, made it through, but he's really weak um, and he's going to need, you know, to recover. Uh, but also here's like a huge packet of information of all the things that he needs to do to like live a healthier lifestyle. Like he should, you know, manage his hypertension a little bit better. He should lose a little bit of weight. He needs to like really exercise more. Like I know, you know, for, especially for Asian parents, like our concept of exercise is like just either doing a little bit of Tai Chi outside or just going uh, on a walk. Yeah. Um, and then also eat better, right? It's the same thing too. Like what our parents think is healthy is what like their friends forward to them through WeChat. Yes. So at the time, um, you know, as his only child, like I kind of like became his de facto like healthcare concierge. I remember my dad constantly texting me and being like, Hey James, can I, uh, can I go fly now? Can I have caffeine? Can I do this? Can I do that? And I was like, I'm not a doctor, dude. Like, why are you asking me these questions? Um, but over time I realized that actually the problem that he was facing and all the uncertainty that he was facing and really truly what the, what was underlying that was anxiety is like really, really common with people that are at that age. Although of course, like I think with it, Asian culture, it's less likely to admit that. And so what we originally started with Mighty Health, the original version was actually a cardiac rehab company. Um, we wanted to create a 12 week program similar to what you do in the hospital, but you just do it at home. What that ended up becoming last year in 2020 was as the pandemic was happening and I noticed my, even my dad, you know, he had a 24 hour fitness membership and then he started having to stay home. He couldn't work with his trainer anymore. I realized that while all of the young, younger adults have like all these incredible options like Peloton and, yeah. um, you know, Nike training club and mirror and, and, and things like that my dad is like stuck with all the traditional options. Like if, if, if things were open, he would go to 24 hour fitness or he'd go to the YMCA. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that the fitness and wellness and nutrition industry has kind of left older adults behind because it's maybe just not as sexy of a market. And because there's also this misunderstanding that older adults don't use technology. Our take at mighty health is that that might've been true historically, but we believe the next 10 to 15 years, especially with older adults, and the aging population going from about 110 mil in America to 145 mil over the next 15 years, that that'll change. We believe that somebody will be the digital wellness platform for older adults. And that's why we're working on Mighty Health. Absolutely. I love that. I love the passion in your voice too. I think as you're like, our mission, I was like, wow, <laughs> you feel the conviction in your voice when you speak about it. So you can tell, yeah, been, you, can, you can tell I've been fundraising recently. <laughs> is very true though you know like my parents they they rarely like to go see the doctor and i think a lot of asian parents they rarely get checkups like their their yearly annual checkups and i think it's just because they don't you know trust the system i don't know I, it's probably a language barrier there's probably a language barrier as well so it you know prohibits them to like push them totally. forward to you know actually go see the doctor and like totally. my parents they they believe everything on WeChat as well. Like it's it's kind of questionable. Like why do you believe stuff that you get through chain mails? You know, it's, it's skeptical. Um, but I think it's incredible, you know, what you've built, especially with the elder, you know, generation. Those are the people who need, you know, their checkups and their their daily healthy exercises the most, right? Because they're getting older every single day. 
Um, but you're right. I think the fitness industry has really kind of forgotten about the older generation and they're just trying to appeal to the younger generation. So I love what you're building. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I can definitely feel I mean, about the situation. Um, I'm comfortable sharing on the podcast, but I'm home in LA right now during the recording of this podcast because my mom has been in, in and out of the hospital for health reasons as well. Uh, she just got a blood transfusion last week and now she's at the hospital again as we are recording this podcast, getting a checkup, you know, to make sure that she's okay. And this, you know, this, this podcast can come at a more perfect time. And the, what you're creating for the older demographic, it's like, you're right. Like my, my parents would ask me for advice to be like, okay, like I came out of hospital. What, what should I take? What kind of vitamins should I take? I immediately just go online, Google it. I'm like, okay, you need some calcium, you need some vitamins, you need sleep, you need this and that. But at the end of the day, like we're not doctors, you know? So we, we, having this app is like so incredible. And I think you're doing a great job. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, I hope your mom is feeling better um, and hope she continues to, to recover well. I think the perspective of someone who's had a family member go through, you know, serious health issues is always different from someone who hasn't. You know, and of course, knock on wood, I hope that most people don't, but it always gives you a really interesting perspective on life, right? Because, you know, it may not be you yourself, but seeing someone that you dearly love go through that kind of experience makes you really appreciate uh, and grasp onto like living a more purposeful and meaningful life, you know, and not wasting your time, you know, and really balancing like patience and impatience. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe it's an Asian thing, but, you know, certainly a big, big part of Mighty Health is actually us attempting to take care of our parents the same way they took care of us. You know, I always say like when we're growing up, they're always like, are you sick? You know, do you need anything? Have you been eating well? You know, all those things. But then when you reach a certain age, it actually ends up becoming the other way around. And I think I think it's becoming tougher and tougher now that we're all living and moving away from my, our parents. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they're all empty nesters. And now figuring out a way that we can really support them from home you know, before, before it gets too late. Absolutely. I also wanted to say, you know, it, I think it's extremely inspiring that, you know, although you don't come from like a medical background, you know, you, you came from like a marketing and management background in um, Georgetown, and then you were also in tech. Um, it's so inspiring to see you actually go into this industry, because I think a lot of people, what goes into their, their mindset is like, if I don't have a medical background, how can I start mm. a business in health and wellness? Right. But you, I, I could see the passion that you have, you know, and I think it, a lot, a lot of it comes from, you know, what happened to your, your father. And I, I could really see, you know, what is driving you forward. So it's just very inspirational for you to, you know, go into this, this industry in health and wellness, um, even if you don't have that background in medical. And it shows, you know, what is possible for all of us. Yeah, it's been a huge learning curve, though. Right. The yeah. first like two years of working on this and going from zero knowledge to being able to talk about how hospitals get paid or how insurance companies make money. Mm -hmm. It's just been a series of like hundreds of coffee conversations with experts mm -hmm. and just begging them to like share their knowledge with me on at mm -hmm. least at a high level. You know, I'll never reach, you know, we do have a medical co-founder and obviously he's one of the best physicians that we have in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but and I'll never reach that level, but it's been really fun getting to know like a brand new space. Um, and, and I agree with you that like, I think sometimes it's really discouraging, but oftentimes because the mission is there and because the, we know what problem we're solving, the rest of it feels like you can kind of figure it out, you know, as you go along. Yeah, exactly. I also absolutely agree. That's also the best part of entrepreneurship 
you know, it's like you have this mission and you just try to figure things out. You don't ask like what, what, well, you ask how, how can I get there? And you start connecting dots. You start looking deeper inside, you start looking at your connections. All of a sudden it's like, exactly. you realize that anything can be built out with the right mindset. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's perfectly said. Absolutely. Um, I love to hear some of the challenges that you went through uh, with Mighty Health and, you know, how did you overcome those challenges? I think one of the biggest ones was that our original vision was to go sell to insurance companies. And, you know, speaking of being out of our depth, right, that we were just talking about, like, usually when you think of insurance sales, it's like friends who, you know, our friends who uh, are on the golf course together with an executive of an insurance company, you know, and they already know each other. And there's like, long lasting relationships that have been built. And so what's really interesting is we, when we went through Y Combinator, we were obviously like extremely excited, you know, to be a part of like such a prestigious program. Uh, and we had heard so much about it, but we were one of those companies that would show up to office hours every other week. And they would ask us if we had any like increase in sales and things like that. And we never really had much to show for it because at the time we were doing like hardcore enterprise sales, you know, things that have a sales cycle of sometimes um, 18 months to two years, right? 18 to 24 months. So while we had a fantastic experience in YC and I would do it again over and over again, um, I think it was just one of those things where we felt like we weren't able to take advantage of it as much as we could have. And we were one of those companies that always felt like we were falling behind the companies that were in our group. You know, you feel that FOMO, you feel that comparison to all the other founders when they're sharing their updates. So one of the big key factors that we had that we that led us to the decision to pivot to what we're working on today um, away from just purely cardiac rehab to becoming a fitness nutrition and wellness app for any older adults that they can sign up for on their own and just download the app from the app store was we came to this realization like oh like if we do that we can not only get revenue in the door earlier and we can actually start making money but we can do so many more things like build our own brand and community, you know, similar to like what Peloton has done, similar to what you have done at AHN. Um, and instead of waiting on our, our hands. And then also um, we can even do little things like write observational clinical trial, you know, studies on them and like do our own papers. We don't have to go through, you know, some uh, fancy academic medical center that wants to charge us half a million dollars to do a study over the next 18 months. We can do a study right now and write a paper next week and submit it the week after. Um, so it just, it was a huge mindset, mindset shift that allowed us to unlock so much more that our team is far more excited about waking up in the morning working on rather than waiting for the contracts to close. Amazing. Yeah, I think um, what you've built is, is so incredible because, you know, I, I know you guys focus on like three different things, the live coaching, the content focus on nutrition, preventative checkups and workouts, and then celebrating um, family members and their achievements on the app. So you really built a community and that goes such a long way because when you have a community, you're able to like push people forward, support each other and just follow their journey, um, which really resonated with, you know, what we're building at Asian Hustle Network. It's one of the very few, I would say, in my opinion, at least, one of the very few defensibility aspects these days, right? Unless you're working on hard tech or you're inventing or you have patents uh, or you're in biotech and pharmaceuticals, like building an amazing brand and amazing community like you have is one of the very few last remaining defensibility aspects that really encapsulates like creating network effects amongst your members that will create a barrier to entry for like future 
companies are just trying to copy the features but Absolutely. just don't have that community. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's well said, James. You know, I'm reading this book by um, Brad Stones. And he talks about how, how the community really protected Airbnb and Uber from falling apart. Their community really protected them, really protected the brand. So I absolutely agree with the statement that you just said. Um, out of curiosity, James, like what's next for you? Like what's next for you and Mighty Health? Where do you hope to take the company in the next couple of years? Well, so we have started with this fitness and nutrition app but I, you know, I think the exciting part is, is just our initial wedge. You know, what we're really, really trying to do with Mighty Health is to build an all-in-one platform. Maggie, I think you did a great job of summarizing that, like an all-in-one platform for older adults and their wellness. So a great example or like a great comparison for this is actually a YMCA. So a lot of people think of YMCA as like a karaoke song <laughs> that you sing, you know, when, you're, when, you're, when you get drunk. But actually, like if you go and visit a YMCA, one of the most fascinating parts of the YMCA is that beyond the fact that there's like exercise equipment and there's a, you know, a basketball court and a pool is that people actually go there to hang out, especially when you're older. Like that's where people go and like hang out and see each other every single day. Yeah. And you can do other things like sign up for classes and talk to a nutritionist and, you know, so on and so forth. And so that's really the vision for Mighty Health is to build like a virtual YMCA for people where, yes, there's joint friendly workouts and there's the personal grocery list and nutrition planning. That's the bread and butter of like what you're actually doing every day. But we want people to come onto our app and hang out with each other. We want them to attend our live events or live Q&As. And so the next couple of years of Mighty is really just expanding that, you know, tenfold really inviting you know people to do more live content on, on our platform that gets recorded and shared with everyone, building out our community to become more rich and, uh, and vibrant with, with each other, um, and even starting to integrate other kinds of hardware devices and other kinds of physical goods. So imagine like we now know, for example, because our members are eating their breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they log all that in Mighty Health and our coach gives them feedback, what if we could actually send people meal kits? You know, and so that they're already low carb, they're already fit the mighty diet, you know, already check off all the boxes. So you don't, you can have to think less about it. And plus it's like fresh groceries, which, you know, uh, you know I, I know that you already know this, but a lot of places in America actually don't have access to fresh groceries, right? They're like, a, it's a food desert. So, um, so that's really like the, the vision for the next two to five years is really to become an all-in-one platform that people use year round and use every day to drive their healthy habits. I love that. I love the yeah. a lot. Yeah, I love the goals, and we have no doubt that Mighty Health will get there. So, <laughs> Thank you. James, we have one last question. You know, you came from a family of entrepreneurs, and you have such you know incredible entrepreneurial experience. If you could give one advice to an aspiring entrepreneur, which we have so many in the Asian Hustle Network community, what would that one advice be? My biggest piece of advice would be to try to pick something that you really feel passionate about solving in the world and, and hope that, and I, and my hope personally, you know, you know, I don't, I don't think this is right for everyone, but I hope that people will spend more time and energy tackling really important social problems. Personally, I believe that today, you know, or, or right now is it's the easiest that it's ever been to actually get a business off the ground. Right. Like the three of us could probably start a business in the same amount of time that we use to record this podcast. Like Brian can be over here, like setting up something on Clerky and just incorporating the, co the company. Maggie and I can like set up a Squarespace website and we'll have a landing page up in like 30 minutes. 
right? And then we'll probably use like a Figma or Webflow to like get the first MVP of the app up. I mean, that is like unprecedented, right? Like, I think like, if you think about the 1990s or the early 2000s, like there's no way that would have happened. Mm-hmm. And so I think that to me, you know, and, and one of the Airbnb founders said this during YC, which is it's like easier than ever to climb the startup mountain. You can just climb whatever mountain and get to the summit. It's still difficult, of course, but it's easier than ever. But I, what I, my hope for entrepreneurs is for you, for everyone to think carefully about what mountain they want to climb. Right. For us, there's a huge difference, you know, in my energy, in my purpose, and my spirit between my work on Mighty versus my work on Encore. I loved working on Encore Alert, but I doubly love working on Mighty Health because it brings me so much energy to hear all of these stories and testimonials every day from our members who live out in Indiana or Tennessee or Oregon who are losing 15, 20, sometimes even 50 pounds and suddenly can go on vacation with their grandkids for the first ever time, or they can actually bend over and pick something up without being in pain that's gonna send them to the hospital. And that mountain to me is what makes all of this, you know, frustration and anxiety, even the imposter syndrome of, you know, fundraising and things like that actually worth it for everyone. So. That, that would be my advice is, is, is pick the right mountain. And, and I hope more smart people spend more of their time working on the right problems. That is the deepest advice I've ever heard on this podcast. <laughs> Good enough. I love that a lot. You're absolutely right. Climbing the right mountain is, it's, it's great advice. Like there's so many opportunities out there that sometimes you get blinded by the money, the prestige, the title, the connections of people you lose track of your core value, who you are as a person and what drives you. And that should be the driving factor for the mountain that you climb. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and what I'll, and just exactly. And what I'll say too, is like startups are not a great way to make money. I'm sure all of the guests that you've have, you've have come on your show have said this, like, if you really want to get paid, like just go work in some other company that pays really well, you know, become an engineer at a large firm or something like that. Right. Yeah. Startups are not a great way to make money. If it does end up, becoming a huge outcome for me, my team, my investors, like I would, I would love that of course, Mm -hmm. but I think any startup journey is going to be anywhere between five to 15 years. It's going to be lots of blood, sweat, and tears. And so what mountain you choose becomes really important because your time is limited. Yeah. That just gave me chills. And on the right mountain, that's when you know, like when when your your product or your company is working and you have people who are coming back to you and saying like, hey, this is the reason your product is the reason why, you know, my life has gotten to a better place. And then that's when we realize, like, this is why I'm doing it. You know, this is the reason why I love doing this every single day. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. Thank you so much for sharing that. So, James, how can our listeners find out more about you and Mighty Health online? Well, yeah, you can check us out at mightyhealth.com. I know we're a product for an older generation. And so one of the things that we offer is the ability for you to actually gift a Mighty Health membership to your parents. Even if they don't like it, we have a 30-day guarantee. So like you can just email us and we have no hard feelings. (laughs) It's really just about trying to help as many people as we can. Um, I also write about just kind of personal startup tactics at my own website, jameslee.com. I try to like break everything down and make it as simple as possible because it's kind of like the blog that I wish I could have read when I was back in college and trying to get my feet wet in entrepreneurship. So yeah, jameslee.com and mightyhealth.com. Awesome. We'll include all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much, James, for sharing your story with us today. It was amazing having you on the podcast. Thank you both so much. It was a joy. 
Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much. This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron.